The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The Lord, or the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now as our God of steadfast love who fully and freely receives us when we come to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we come to you now, Lord. We come thanking you for the gift that is your word. And we pray that you would guide us in it and lead us in it as we give attention to it now. Spirit of God, open our eyes to see and behold wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I can often have these daydreams, and one of them is that, like out of the blue one day, I find out that I've inherited like this massive wealth. You guys ever do things like that? Daydream? Well, I'm a child of the 90s, so my mind immediately goes to movies like King Ralph. Maybe you've seen that. As a pastor, you're always careful, like, PG movies in the 90s are not necessarily PG movies now, but that's where my mind goes. King Ralph, if you've never seen the movie, John Goodman, total no-name, like a floundering lounge singer, all about the Packers, all about the Cubs, wakes up one day as a nobody and goes to sleep that night realizing that he is now the king of England. Like the whole royal family in this accident dies, and somehow or another, Ralph is the relative in line, the next of kin in line to inherit the throne of England. That'd be kind of cool. See, sometimes I get so caught up in imagining things that I'll never have. Like, I'll never wake up and find out that I've become the king of England. I'll never, that'll never happen to me. Sometimes I get so caught up in imagining and daydreaming about things that I don't have that I actually forget about the things that I do have. Psalm 119, in this stanza right here, the psalmist is not all caught up in what he doesn't have because he's so taken aback by what he actually does have. He's enamored with the understanding that he has the most valuable possession that any individual could possibly have. He knows the living God. Look at the text again. The stanza is bracketed by two very similar statements. In verse 57, it literally reads, My portion, Yahweh. And then in verse 64, it literally reads, Your loving kindness, Yahweh. So it's like the psalmist is so caught up, Lord, you're all I got. 
And your love is all that I see. It's all over the place. I'm so consumed with this awareness that I get to enjoy you. You're my portion. You're my inheritance. And when I look around, your love is all that I see. He's not distracted by what he doesn't have because he's so consumed by what he has in a relationship with the living God. Now, I love Jesus. And I study his word. But I would be lying to you if I always walked around all caught up in how wonderful it is that I get to know the living God. Like how many people woke up this morning and your first like daydream was the chicken wing dip that you're going to enjoy while you're watching the Super Bowl? That's where my mind goes. And just to be clear, like, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm really looking forward to some chicken wing dip. And I'm looking forward to watching the game with my boys. But I get concerned for myself that so often my love for God can seem like it's on the same playing field with, like, chicken wing dip. And if I'm truly honest, I'm just trying to be gut-level honest with you guys. If I'm really honest, my love for created things, food, drink, whatever, can actually be inverted. Like, my love for God can take a second place to those things. I'm concerned for myself. I'm concerned for us as a church. It's easy to live life not truly believing that we have in our relationship with Christ the most valued possession that any individual could possibly have. We get to know the living God. I was doing some reading this week about the earth, planet earth. The earth right now, you guys know this, is tilted on its axis at 23 degrees. Do you know what happens if like even by a a degree or two that changes? We're, like life as we know it is completely altered. Scientists tell us that ocean vapors would travel north and south and what we would have are continents filled with ice. So no more seasons, like all of the four seasons would be gone. No more snowboarding. No more campfires, no more leaves changing in the fall, no more diving into crashing ocean waves at the beach. Those are all gone. The earth right now travels every year a distance of 600 million miles in its orbit around the sun. 600 million miles. If we were to take a road trip right now and go from New York to L.A., about 3,000 miles, let's say, we would have to drive back and forth 200,000 times in one year to go the distance that our planet Earth, this ball that we're all sitting comfortably on right now, the same distance, 200,000 times. Which means that the Earth right now is traveling at 19 miles per second. We're going 68,000 miles per hour right now. Like, I can't even, you know when I get in the car and like I go too fast and the engine starts to rattle? That's like at 100, not to say that I've gone 100 miles an hour. (laughs) Cat's out of the bag now. But you start to get a little nervous, right? 68,000 miles an hour? Now,
Now, when we slow down and think about it, as Christians, we really believe that this ball that we're traveling that fast on came into existence because the Creator God spoke it to be. Which means that the same God that's that powerful at a moment in eternity past knew Rose Mugway. He knew Jesse and Rebecca Shirk. He knew the Turners. He knew the McMullins. And he chose in his sovereign love before any of this came to be to set his affections and his love on you individually. But his love was not just some conjured up emotional feeling. He actually wrapped himself in humanity. He moved into our neighborhood. He came to dwell and to live and to tabernacle among us. It didn't even stop there. Knowing how much he loved you, he willingly, obediently, lovingly went to the cross and there he said, Father, I'll take it all for them. I'll absorb it all. I so want to know them and be in a relationship with them that I will suffer willingly an excruciating death. I'll pay the penalty for their sins in its entirety. And then I'll rise again from the dead so that I can proclaim to them this good news. Everything's been taken care of. I want to have a relationship with you and I've done everything necessary to bring you into a relationship with myself that will never end because I'm going to do everything necessary not only to save you, but then to bring you safely home. Oh, why don't we cherish this more often? I can live so often as if chicken wing dip is on the same playing field as everything I just got done saying. Now, as a Christian, I want... I want to reserve a level of affection for Christ and all that he's done for us in a unique way that sets it apart, don't you? If you're a true Christian, you, you, you want that. You know you struggle to get it, and you know you struggle to maintain it. But I believe deeply in us, God has put in us this desire to, to love him and to honor him the way that he deserved to be, even though we do it so imperfectly. And so he gives us texts like this to help us. He wants to help us because he knows our sins and our weaknesses. And what Psalm 19 in verses 57 through 64 does is it helps us to remember who we are in him. It helps us to remember that he is our portion. In order to return, don't you want to return and live with that sense of awe and that wonder of who God is? and all that he's done to make you his own. I want to live with that sense of awe and wonder more often than I do. This helps us, and one of the ways it helps us is by reminding us that God is our portion. What does that mean? What does it mean that the Lord, Yahweh, the Creator God, is our portion? Well, to understand this, we've got to go back to Israel's beginnings. So we know that Israel was delivered out of Egypt, God delivered them, and he brought them into the promised land. And once he did that, of the 12 tribes of Israel, what did he do with the land? He divided it and portioned it among them. So this was not just like, cool, I get like a, you know, a yard and I'm in the neighborhood. It was, it was deeply meaningful for Israelites to have physical land because the physical land was a constant 
tangible reminder to them that their God had delivered them, had settled them, and created physical space for them to live out their relationship with him. This was a big deal. This meant you were in the fam. If I've got land, I'm in the family of God. And I get to cultivate this relationship with him. This was huge. There was one tribe, though, who didn't get any land. Do you guys remember who that was? What tribe didn't get land? The Levites. So the tribe of Levi, they were the ones that oversaw the worship of God. So they didn't get any land. They had to actually learn what it meant to trust God and to be content in what he provided for them through a variety of means. To them, he said, in Numbers chapter 18, Levites shall have no inheritance, neither shall they have any portion among the Israelites. I, the Lord your God, am your portion. I, the Lord your God, and your inheritance. Now, I'm sure at times the Levites saw that for what it was. Like, this was a huge privilege and a huge honor to have the Lord God be my portion in the same way that these other people have land, physical land as their portion. That's a huge honor. But I know my own heart. So I think I can safely assume that at other times they really didn't consider that that great of a privilege. Like, I can, I can picture certain Levites being like, man, it would really be nice. Wouldn't it be great, honey, if we had like our own land? Grow our own vegetables, raise our own animals. Like we can eat when we wanted to eat. We can slaughter when we wanted. We didn't have to go to the temple and wait and make, I hope they bring the sacrifice. I hope we get to eat tonight. It'd be really nice to kind of be able to control that, wouldn't it? They would lose sight of the fact that the Lord God was their portion, just like we do. So what would re-envision them? What would a genuine Israelite be re-envisioned by in their relationship with God? Well, if we're reading this correctly, they would return to God's Word, and I think that they would return to places like Deuteronomy 32. This is what Deuteronomy 32 says. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, their portion, when He divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. He's talking about the division of land among the Israelites. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. So what does God daydream about? What does God look forward to enjoying Forever. What's he looking forward to getting? His people. You and me. You see, what envisions us and what returns us to this place of awe and wonder is not that we've chosen to be friends with God, but that he, the living God who flung planets into space with his spoken word, that same God, Chosen, is chosen to be friends with you and with me. We believe as Christians in the Trinity, right? We believe that God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's always existed that way, which means that he's always existed in a perfect 
relationship with himself, a community in the Godhead, a giving and a receiving, a loving and an honoring, an enjoyment of a deep, intimate relationship. And the creation account is almost like this spilling over of that, like like the Godhead saying, this is so good that we've got to share this. Like we've got to go public with this so that men and women created in the image of God can actually enter into and enjoy this good thing that we enjoy, this relationship, the giving and the receiving, the honoring and the loving, the intimacy of being known and knowing. The capacity for relationship is one of the fundamental things that makes you and I human beings. Imagine with me for a moment that you're back in elementary school. If you've got kids, just kind of close your eyes and picture them playing out in the yard. And the group of kids forms and they decided to play a game of catch. But this group has decided beforehand that they were not going to include you. So the game ensues and everyone is kind of giggling and laughing and having a good time and you're all into it. But the ball's not coming to you. So you're patient at first and you begin to kind of inch your way out into the middle like, yo guys, I'm over here. Believing randomly that the ball's not coming your way but it still doesn't come. Until it finally dawns on you, it's never coming. This game isn't intended for me. And so what do we do? We just kind of act like we didn't really want to play anyway. We stop trying. We kind of just slink away, hoping that this game is going to end immediately. Studies have actually been done that they create that exact scenario. In his book, James K.A. Smith says that researchers, when they spoke to these people who were intentionally excluded, when they spoke to them, they shared an increased sense that life is meaningless and devoid of purpose. Why? Because they have this deep-seated longing to be included, to be involved, to be accepted. And what Smith says is that little game, that experiment pulls back the curtain on a fundamental human need that all of us can relate to. The need to be known. The need to be accepted. The need to be truly loved. What if if you have the capacity and the desire for relationship because God actually did that on purpose? What if that desire for relationship and acceptance is written on your DNA? What if it's because God would want to come to you and say, I want to be friends with you? Being made in the image of God necessitates relationship with Him in our lives. It's it's not a cherry on top. It's the very purpose for why we were created, and it's the very purpose for why all of us long to be in a relationship with others. Tim Keller says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known but not loved, that's our worst fear, right? 
We guard ourselves. We protect ourselves. We don't truly let our guards down because if people really knew who I was, they'd run away. To be known but not loved is one of our greatest fears. However, to be fully known and truly loved, that's a lot like being loved by God. It's what, Keller says, all of us need more than anything. Friends, that's what the Gospel is. That's why it's so good news. The Gospel says to us, God fully knows you. And He totally loves you. Like if Jesus came to sit at the table tonight with you, and He knew all about you, what would you expect Him to say? If he knew it all, if he knew all of your foibles of discipleship, if he knew where you were this week, if he knew what you were looking at, if he knew what words came out of your mouth, what would you expect him to say at dinner tonight? Would you expect wrath? God loves us. He willingly knows us. He knows everything about us. And he has chosen in his sovereign being to set his affection on you in spite of everything that's true about you. He loves you. Like, he really loves you. Jesus didn't come into the world to change God's mind about that. Jesus came into the world, one man says, to change humanity's mind about God. He really loves you. And somehow, I think Christians, and I can relate to this, we can believe that God loves other people. Like, I can believe God for grace and mercy for you, but for some reason, I don't, I get tripped up when I apply it to myself. Like, I have to really fight to believe that God loves me. I don't know why that is, but I do. <coughs> the psalmist is inviting us to believe it afresh for ourselves. God is my portion, and I am His. Because in the Lord God, I find somebody who truly knows me, everything about me, and yet he fully loves me. That's why in Luke 10, when Martha and Mary have Jesus and his friends over for dinner, do you remember what happens there? Martha's all stressed out and anxious because she wants to take like the perfect Instagram photo and things are not quite right yet. So she's running all over the place, pulling her hair out and stressed, Because her sister Mary is sitting there at the feet of Jesus doing nothing. And so she gets all huffy with Jesus, right? Lord, aren't you going to tell my sister Mary to get up and help? What does Jesus say? Martha, Martha, you're upset and stressed out and bothered by all these things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the what? The good portion. Mary has come into personal contact with the one who truly knows her and fully loves her. That's why you can't pry Mary away from her, from him. Right? He comes into, she comes into a relationship finally and fully with a, with a person, with Jesus Christ, who fully knows her and completely loves her just as she is. Do you know Jesus that way? Do you know him that way? If you know Christ in that way, you have found in Him what is met is your most fundamental human need for acceptance, just as you are. Now, He's going to change us, but He loves us just as we are. 
Now, is that to say every time we sit down and open our Bibles that we have this Mary-like experience, like fireworks are going off, it's just me and Jesus, and I'm just so enjoying this intimate time with the Lord? No. Right? Any honest Christian will say, sometimes when I read my Bible, it's hard because, I, for one, I'm distracted. Uh, at other times, I don't completely understand what I read. And at other times, what I read, I don't really believe sometimes. I actually struggle with doubts. But that's the honest Christian experience. Some people deal with that. Let me just encourage us. If that, is that you? To some degree, it's all of us at times. One of the things that encourages me is when you, when you meet Thomas, like here's a guy who spends years with Jesus in the flesh, and yet he doubts says, unless I touch his side, unless I feel his hands, I'm not going to believe this about his resurrection. And Jesus specifically and intentionally comes to him, doubting Thomas, and says, Thomas, come here, touch me. Stop disbelieving. Believe. Do you see what he's doing there? He loves Thomas in all of his doubts, and he invites him to come. But this is what else he says. He says, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. More blessed are those who haven't seen and believed. That's all of us. Right? We don't see, physically see Jesus in the flesh, but there is a blessing that he pronounces on us when we haven't seen him personally, but yet we try and we fight and we come back time and time again to help. Help me see you through your word, Lord. That's a struggle of faith that God would say to you, keep going. You're doing well. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Don't give up. Don't give up in this struggle of faith. God is our portion, and he has made us his portion. That's why we keep returning time and time again to the place where he reveals himself most clearly to us in his word. Now, flowing from all of this talk about relationship and God being our portion is a very practical implication for our lives. Okay, so when we look at the rest of these verses, we start to see that the psalmist is making all of these commitments. He says, the Lord is my portion, verse 57, I promise to keep your words. The commitment to prayer. He says in verse 58, I entreat your favor with all my heart. So here's a commitment to prayer. I'm sorry, the first was the commitment to obedience. I promise to keep your words. Verse 58, a commitment to prayer. I'm treating the Lord. I'm, I'm praying. I'm seeking his favor. When I think on my ways, verse 59, I turn my feet to your testimonies. Here's a commitment to an ongoing change, ongoing repentance. Wherever I'm out of line with God's word, I'm trying to return to walk in his ways. He's making all these commitments. In the Psalms, the psalmist doesn't just call us to feel what he feels. The psalmist also calls us to commit to what he commits to. Does that make sense? So we're called to feel. Poems do that. Poems evoke feelings in us. And the feeling that we're trying to evoke that the psalmist is doing is this awe and wonder in my relationship with the living God. But that relationship and my awe and wonder of that relationship leads me to make particular decisions and commitments with my life. You following me? So when I think about this, I could just start unpacking all of these commitments that he's making. And we could be here until Super Bowl. What I want to do, though, is just focus on one. As I was 
thinking about this and praying for us as a church and thinking about our lives together, I was asking the Lord, which one of these stands out? Which one of these should we address most? And I believe what God led me to see here is verse 63. I'm a companion of all who fear you. This is a commitment to community. It's a decision born, it's a commitment born out of this knowledge that what I experience in my relationship with God is the best human possession. He is my inheritance. But flowing from that, flowing from the relationship that I enjoy with God is a commitment to being in relationship with other people. It's a commitment to community. Now, one of the reasons why I camp out here is because when we think about spiritual formation, that's a series we're in, right? We're trying to grow closer to God. When we think about that, if we were to kind of close our eyes and think and pray, I think what forms, when I think about spiritual growth, or I think when we think about spiritual growth, we're like all alone. We're talking about my Bible reading plan. We're talking about what God is showing me. We're talking about where I need to grow. And all those things are true and right. But when I close my eyes and think about true spiritual growth, there's always companions that appear in my mind. If you think about times in your life where you've grown the most, I dare say that what you start to see is that there are companions that God has brought. There are brothers and sisters that God has brought into your life to help you to grow, right? When I was growing up, I wasn't a real nice kid. Shocking, I know. I wasn't. I, I wasn't. I wasn't fun to be around. I was arrogant. I was very selfish. I was annoying. Like, I'd be the kid picking on someone from across the street, and as soon as that big kid started chasing me, I would run. I was a coward. Which still makes me so confused and shocked that when I was 19, one of those kids that grew up across the street, that new annoying, self-centered, arrogant Jason came to me at 19 and knocked on my door asking if he can talk with me. Doug, my friend Doug, had just met Jesus Christ. He came into a relationship with Christ through faith and he came to talk to me, me. We didn't always get along. In fact, we fought a lot. He pursued me to tell me who Jesus was and how in Christ he had found an inexplicable joy and peace and contentment because he had come into a relationship with a living God. Doug was enjoying the Lord is my portion. Now at 19, I was not looking for God. The Lord was not my portion. The only portion I was concerned about was the portion of weed that I was going to be able to smoke on any given a day. Like, that was where I was at. I was not pursuing God. I had no interest in pursuing God. And what God used was a neighborhood friend who really knew me and loved me enough to enter in with me and to share with me the truth of the gospel. I know Jesus today because God used a companion, Doug, to tell me about him. 20 years later, over 20 years, just talking to Doug this week, he's a pastor now up in New England. We're still helping one another to follow Jesus. I know Jesus today, and I continue to know him better because I have a companion on this road of discipleship. Do you have any companions like that? 
We cannot truly know God. If we were born with a capacity for a relationship to know him, that has implications for who we do life with. We're relational beings, and we come to know God deeper through relationship with one another. Are we committed to that type of companionship? Are we committed to community the way the psalmist is committed? Now, there are a lot of roadblocks, right? I can, I can imagine even some of them are coming to your mind. Like, Jason, if you knew how badly Christians have hurt me in the past, like, you would know why I try to keep my distance from the church. Or, you know, if the church would just offer more programs where I can plug in to get to know people, then I would be a companion of those who fear the Lord. Or, you know what, I really have tried to be a good friend to people, and I failed in it. Like, I don't know how to do this. I messed it up. Or, I'm so busy right now that the thought of doing the hard work of being a good friend seems so daunting to me, I don't have time for that. I get all of those. I understand them. I have some of those same issues myself. Let's be honest. Friendship does require a lot of hard work. It requires being sinned against and forgiving. It requires entering into situations that are difficult. It actually requires exactly what Jesus did. It re- it, the gospel demands a type of friendship that conforms us to what Jesus is. Jesus got uncomfortable and came to you. He came to me. And he befriended us. That we might also be friends with him and companions with those who fear and love him. Without relationships, we will not grow deeper in our relationship with Christ. So what does it actually look like? What does it look like to be a good friend? What does it look like to be a companion? Not just to have them, but to be that. He who desires friends, what must first be friendly? How do we be good friends in a biblical sense? Taking some of these, Doug, my buddy Doug, my friend Doug, recently he's a pastor, he just preached on friendship. Very helpful message. I'm taking some of these things from what I learned there. Friendship, what does it involve? Friendship involves listening. It involves listening. So when I read the book of Job, I always want to call a timeout at the end of chapter 2. The end of chapter 2, that's when we find Job's friends coming to him. They find out what's happened in Job's lives, and so they come, and they just sit with him. The Bible says that for seven days and seven nights, they don't open their mouths at all because they can see how deep the pain is for Job. And that's where I just want to say, guys, you're doing so well. Just don't open your mouths. Just sit there. Just weep. Just be quiet. You're doing well. Sometimes being a good friend means we just come and sit with each other. We listen. We ask good questions. Being a good friend means we're not pushing our agendas on other people. We're not trying to fix one another. Being a good friend involves Proverbs 18.13. Before answering, before listening, that is folly and shame. If we're giving answers to questions we don't even know exist, that's folly and shame. We've got to listen to understand so that we can truly help the friends that we have. Until we really learn how to listen, 
we can't even begin to talk about the other things that friendship involves. And the other thing is vulnerability. Friendship involves listening. It also involves vulnerability. Are you the type of person that people feel very comfortable opening up with? Like, this is what's really going on. Proverbs 18, 24, a man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Are you a friend that sticks close, that really enters in and allows people to say, hey, this is what I'm really dealing with. Do you have any companions that you can say, hey, this is what I'm, re- this is what I'm really going through? And the reason this is so important is because where the gospel needs to get deep and thorough work done in our lives are in those areas. So if we only stay surface level and talk about the surface level problems, which we should talk about, but if we only stay there, then God's Word, which He means to speak to us through people, never gets down to interact with the real struggles that we're having on a day-to-day life. Friendship involves vulnerability because God means to use friends in our lives to take the Gospel and to take His Word and to carefully and skillfully apply it to the areas where we need it the most. Friendship involves listening, it involves vulnerability, and it involves speaking. It involves speaking. See, Job's friends weren't wrong in opening their their mouths. It's what came out of them and how that was the problem. When we listen well, we create space for vulnerability, and then once others have been vulnerable and we can understand what they're going through, then we can carefully and skillfully speak to them in life-giving ways, reminding one another of who we are in Christ and all that God's done for us to make us His own. Proverbs 12, speaking rashly, you know what that's like? It's like thrusting swords. That's a powerful metaphor especially when somebody is struggling before us, maybe crying, maybe scared to tell us what is really going on. If we speak rashly, it's like thrusting a sword in somebody who's already wounded. But the words of the wise bring healing. That's what we're called to do for one another, to speak healing, wise words, the words of Scripture, applying them to the deep issues of our lives, and actually gain vitality and health. So we can't always just listen. There comes a time when we have to speak, but those words are very intentional. They're life-giving words that allow us to hear God's voice in a powerful way and change us in the places where we need it the most. Friends, do you have any companions that you're doing that with? Are you listening? Are you being vulnerable? Are you speaking? Is anybody doing that for you? I wonder if one of the reasons why we don't experience more awe and wonder in our relationship with God is that we've isolated ourselves from other people. For all kinds of reasons. Out of fear, inconvenience, past hurts. We isolate ourselves and we wonder, why am I not experiencing more vitality in my relationship with the Lord? It's because He's created us to be in relationship with Him and with others. And when we isolate ourselves, we miss out on a major component of what it means to truly know Him. So we all get stuck at times. We all maybe isolate at times. What do we 
what do we do? What are some practical, very simple steps that you can consider taking? Well, around here we meet in small groups. They're called missional communities. These are not like the silver bullet solution to your companionship, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But they are a context. They're a context in which you can know other people and let them know you. So check out our website. You can come to our group if you want. We meet on Thursday nights in Glenmore. This is an invitation. Check out a missional community. You can go on our website and you can look at where and when groups meet and just start visiting a few if you're not plugged in. Guys, you know that the Bible study is happening on Saturdays. There's two left. It's not too late. Just come out. Take a small step in being a companion with other men. You can find that God will bless those initial small steps that we take. Ladies, you are, many of you are already plugged in. If you're not, if you're a lady and you want to start to pursue companionship, check out one of the Bible studies Wednesday morning, Wednesday evening. Just attend. See what God does. If you've been coming out to the church and you're not yet kind of plugged into any of those things, Explore is starting in a few weeks. Uh, February 23rd, right down the hall during the first service. Come out. Take a small step in being a companion and thinking about what it means to get truly plugged into the church. This is what God means. God means to use other people in our lives to help us deepen in our relationship with Him. In closing, I'll call the band back up. Let's go back to the King Ralph thing. Odd way to close a sermon on friendship, right? But there's this guy, Cedric, he plays the king's secretary in this movie. And his job is to teach Ralph, like everything, everything about England, what it means to live as a nobility, what it means to be a king. He's helping Ralph to enjoy responsibly this huge inheritance that he's been given. Maybe there's a lesson in there for us. right? We really believe that in Christ, God has befriended us. He's met our most fundamental human need to be fully known and truly loved. He is our portion, and we are His. But now that we're His, He calls us to be friends with one another. And so together, with the help of others, we could really truly come into knowing Psalm 16. The Lord is our chosen portion. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we have a beautiful inheritance.